How's that? Lovely. Lovely. Lovely to look at. Heaven to hold. <laughs> hey, is that beer? No, I'm not a beer drinker at all. Trying to be good at the moment, so this is a seltzer, the Croix Key Lime. Oh, you're taking a break. Oh, what's it like? No, no, <laughs> I'm not taking a break. I've actually got the wine here too. It's just I'm gonna have something Early? so I don't. <laughs> my uh, my throat tends to catch sometimes, as you probably noticed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Hopefully, I'll even it out. I speaking of which, I you know, I Smirnoff became my vodka of choice, and some people still think, well, it's not as good as Tito's, and I said Tito's is harsh in the stomach. And, like, Belvedere's is nice. It's a bit smooth, too, but it's very pricey. You know, a small bottle, well, not a small bottle, but, like, what, is that, what do they call it, a fifth? You know, it's like $53. And absolute, so, okay, but that's, that's a weak-derived vodka, and it just, oh, you know, the next day you just feel like shit. That's the problem. See, I got nailed so bad with that that one time I told you yeah. the story that I basically, other than your vodka martinis, my wedding when somebody slipped me a couple of screwdrivers and maybe one other time, I don't touch it anymore, but absolutely used to be my vodka. Yeah, so, yeah. I, the funny thing was I would have it on occasion, Bloody Mary's, the occasional martini. I was a gin person around, or I became a gin, gin person around, let's say, 10 years ago. And it lasted for about uh, about two year period. And and then you realize it tastes like shoe. No, polish. you know what it is. It's the <laughs> juniper berry. It's very particular. It's very. Uh, they they make gin with juniper your berries and and um, you know after a while I was trying to cut it. It's just not a lot of things you can cut gin with, you know. And then I was like, you know what? I think this is wrecking my stomach. And so, I knocked it out. Uh, completely. Once every three or four years, I'll go to a place where, you know, we specialize in gin drinks. Okay, I'll try them. Okay, that's it. And, you know, because when you go to a spot, they give you a small one. But, you know, so the story goes, there's a lot of small batch uh, places that are popping up all over the place, you know, uh, with, with uh, you know, whiskeys, vodkas, gins. And so I, I even tried a small batch vodka. I was like, this is made in, like, my grandmother's basement, you know, that kind of deal, you know. <laughs> And, yep. and they, they're just nasty. Nasty. Yeah. Oh, and I, I really don't get the whole microbrewery, micro, whatever they're doing. I know they think it's artisanal or something, but like you said, I have friends that are actually making their own booze. My folks used to try to do that. Baby, back yeah. they're, they're making like uh, elderberry wines nice. and crap. And you can't make your own beer because not only doesn't it work, but if you do it in a cask that was already had like elderberry wine in it, everything tastes like elderberries. Yeah. <laughs> so... But, yeah, I mean, booze is not the same for me as it used to be because, I mean, I'm still drinking the red wines, but, you know, I had that vodka incident, which left me crawling on the floor. I thought I was going to die for a day. Then I kind of swore off that. And then I was a bourbon guy for years, but then I started getting a lot of nasty ulcers and shit. Uh-huh. So, again, I kind of, I don't want to say swore off either one, but I don't really touch them that much. I'm not like I used to be. I used to be a binge drinker. Now I'm like, eh, I'll drink on occasion. I'll drink when I'm at somebody's house. I'll drink, do these podcasts, whatever else. Right. But that's about yeah, it. Yeah, there's a place near me, New Jersey Beer Company. They actually have, it's in a warehouse district near Secaucus. And um, mm. so it's a warehouse. You go in there, there's the big vats of beer. And wow, you know, and they make their own. And uh, I don't mind it so much, you know, that it's interesting. Like they have a little chalkboard there, like 9.7%. like, Wow. You can't yeah. even finish a glass of beer when it's like that. It's just, it's just, you know, not only does it fill you, you can't finish a glass of beer. 
Well, that was the good thing about the Oktoberfest, because the German beers were always stronger with the alcohol, even though they taste like mm. crap. But now, with this people making their own, that's their big selling point. So, oh, look, you know, instead of getting whatever it is, 0.1, you're getting a 0.7 and a 0.9 or whatever the hell Well, else. I did that years ago, because my, my good friend was into it. Then my other good friend was into it. And I said, okay. And then, you really, I got to I gotta buy the bottles. I got to buy the yeast. I got to buy this. I got to buy that. Yep. And then it ferments, uh, what was it, like five, six weeks. And then I, I only got pure success one time when I made about, I don't know, 30 bottles. And half, when you opened it, uncapped it, they were, they were just fizzed out. Like ah. <laughs> The other half, everybody was like, this is amazing. Can I have another one? Like, boop, 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 boop. Nah, okay. <laughs> All right, so let's test this and go right to Steve. All right. All right. The Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things pond and wonderful in the world of cultural entertainment. Tonight, Steve McQueen on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening, and welcome to the fifth episode, hey, I knew this time, of the ninth, <laughs> ninth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So tonight... With a colorful background and a love of fast living, his real-life exploits put to shame anything seen in his films. A noted motocross aficionado and race car driver, Steve McQueen was born of Scotch roots in the throes of the Great Depression to a flying circus stunt flyer who abandoned him at an early age. Difficult family relations led to a hard scrabble youth as a real-life juvenile delinquent and gangbanger, leaving him living on the streets at one point before being consigned to Juvenile Hall. He later joined the Merchant Marine, went AWOL, worked in a whorehouse on an oil rig as a carnival barker and roustabout, joined the Marines, went AWOL again, did time in the brig, no question he earned his reputation as a tough guy. Turning to acting relatively late in life, he was already approaching the ripe old age of 30 by the time he landed his first notable role as a teenager mind in a low-budget sci-fi horror film that would become a classic of the genre, The Blob. With a lucky break and a Sinatra picture not far behind, McQueen proceeded to appear in a number of accepted classics, The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Tom's Crown Affair, Bullet. But a run of questionable choices and roles in less successful films left his last decade on much shakier ground, despite being the highest paid actor of his day, and much faded on television even in commercial advertising, until one of his earlier decisions came back in the form of a terminal disease that took him from us at a relatively young age of only 50. So join us tonight as we talk the highs and lows, triumphs and struggles of a man still put forth as a tough guy's tough guy, the inimitable Steve McQueen. This is week 75, folks. The quiet cool of Steve McQueen. So, like I said, I am Doc Savage. With me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Yeah, Steve McQueen was a really good choice. I've been chomping at the bit. Chomping at the bit. Well, I, I, <laughs> you know how we've covered so many people over the years, uh, and we've been doing actors on and off for the past year, so more or less. He's a guy, when I realize some movies I really, really like, he's in them. And, um, and there are some movies that... Maybe not his fault. They're not as good as they could be. And if only they were better films, they would just be up there with the ones I really, really like. 
oddly enough, he works really good in ensemble films, I, I thought. Uh, another thing I wanted to add before we go into it. Yeah, McQueen was kind of a wild party animal. Everybody knows Star Star, the stone yep. song off of um, uh, Go Tetsu. And uh, it's originally Starfucker. Well, there's no editing in our show, folks. That's right. And 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 what's that line? Ali McGraw got mad at you for giving head to Steve McQueen. So obviously Jagger knew what was going on because he, you know, I'm sure they traveled in a lot of the same circles. Yeah, McQueen know? was a bit cokehead at that point. It was well known. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something that didn't come out until near later on. He was also really big into martial arts. Yes. I guess every so often he would try to clean up. He knew Bruce Lee. I believe he was a student, mm -hmm. uh, as yes. well as James Coburn. And Steve McQueen and James Coburn could be seen carrying Bruce Lee's coffin at the funeral, uh, outside of the uh, funeral home to the uh, limo, whatever they're called, hearse. And so, yeah, guys all over also was nominated for major awards several times, including the Academy Award rather early on. So we're going to remind you, hopefully in part, you know, how good he was as an actor and how some films weren't great he was good <laughs> in and how some films were not bad, but he wasn't good at And there's a couple, I think we may agree, there's a couple of pictures that are way, way overrated, mm -hmm. not due to his performance or lack of, or the director's thing. But there, there are a few pictures here that I'm like, why does this have this yep. heavy thing? Oddly enough, there's a movie that blows my mind every time I, I see it called Soldier in the Rain. Uh, that's, that's something worth discussing, but Let's, you want to start? I'll follow you. Yeah, I've actually got a little bit of an intro here, some of which covers Please. the same territory as the promo intro, but with you know, a little bit more dirt, if you will. Steve McQueen built himself a niche as a loner and a trouble outsider type. Not so much a JD like Elvis or Jimmy Dean, because he never looked young. I mean, he started at 30. The guy looked in his 40s, honestly, as early as the blob, when he was supposed to be playing a teenager. But... Less the sort of tough guy that you got with James Coburn or Clint Eastwood, and not as volatile and mouthy as a Bronson either. He's just the kind of guy who always wound up sitting off by himself in a corner, barely paying attention to whatever anyone else is doing, until it was time to do something crazy, daring, grandstandingly heroic even. And he just saved this role in variations on same in dozens of westerns, war films, in the occasional cop film or melodrama, but seldom if ever did he really break outside of that testosterone-driven guy film milieu. Now, here's a caveat. You know, usually we pick the subjects of our shows because it's a genre, a director, an actor we like, and are familiar with several films they've been in. And in fact, mm -hmm. decks are stacked in our favor, so even with a few surprises that you get along the way, you know the balance will turn out decidedly positive. I gotta be honest, while I enjoy a few of the films we'll be talking tonight, and our subject is certainly at least a, if not the focal point in those films. So it's not like, okay, I don't like Steve McQueen, but... I've never had to suffer through so much junk as I did this time around prepping for this show. I think I sat through more non-spaghetti westerns, tedious war films, gritty prison and, and crime films, and soapy melodramas in covering one subject than we ever have to date. So, yeah, McQueen is great, but damn, there's a lot of crap we're going to be digging into tonight. So I feel like I should be getting combat pay after this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll probably have our disagreements on and off. I'm sure. A little bit of background. 
which is probably a lot more interesting than some of the films we'll be talking tonight. He was born of Scotch roots in the throes of the Great Depression, 1930. By the time he gets to the blob, he looks every day of his age. The guy's love of fast living, motocross, race cars, and such probably stems from his father's working as a stunt flyer and his anti-establishment tone from his hostile relationship with his stepfather, who apparently beat the living shit out of the guy, more or less turned him into a real-life J.D. and gangbanger, like I mentioned. At one point, he was living on the streets. He wound up in Juvie Hall, the whole nine yards. He later joined the Merchant Marine, went AWOL, like I said, worked in a whorehouse and an oil rig as a carny, barker, and roustabout. He joined the Marines, went AWOL again, did time in the brig. That like, sounds like a good job working in a whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, he could have been the Jews mopper, you don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's there's, not the Jews. There's no bullshit in saying that. He actually was a tough guy <laughs> for the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, he's got that lived-in look that was earned. And as he moved into the 70s, like we have mentioned also, apparently he was a big-time pothead and cokehead as well, which probably didn't matter given his, unfortunately, contracting cancer from some asbestos removal and exposure during his time in the military. Yeah. On the flip side, he was big on exercise, like you mentioned. He practiced martial arts. I mean, it's I guess it's kind of like those guys you see that, like, they're riding a bicycle around the park, but they got a cigarette hanging out of their mouth. I don't know. Or maybe, like you said, he just balanced it out like, eh, I'm getting a little too flabby, I'm getting a little too smoky, whatever. Let me go and try to... Now I'm going to clean up. Oh, well, that's too long. I need to do a little sniffy. Back to that. But one way or another, there was this strange balance going on in his life. And there's a Manson connection. Uh, True to life, folks. Steve McQueen was friendly with Sharon Tate. Uh, As far as I know, not that friendly, (laughs) but friendly. And Roman was in and out of the country uh, filming or scouting locations. And they've been at parties together. And actually... The really, uh, maybe a tad overlong Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Of all people, uh, this guy, who I really, is not, I'm not the biggest fan of him. He's a British actor. I think he was in Homeland, Damien something, Lewis. Uh, he plays Steve McQueen, uh, who's at these parties. And he doesn't have a lot of lines. And I never thought he looked like him, but he nailed it. And so uh, if any of you have seen this film, you know what I'm talking about. And apparently there's going to be more footage. They're going to release the ultra long. I have to take a pee break version. <laughs> um, it's a really good movie, actually. I, I was surprised how good it is. It's now my second film next to Jackie Brown of his. But, yeah, this guy, Damian Lewis, I believe his name is. Uh, I think he was in Homeland or the original season of such. Yeah, he, he, he really nails it. And a lot of the stuff we just talked about, you know, like his – as getting older, being a party guy, there's a lot of that in there. And, and some of the lines he has is really interesting because he's with a woman in one of the scenes in that film. And he's like, she's not interested in me. He's referring to Sharon Tate. And because you could tell he was kind of interested in her. And that was one of the rumors of the time that he was really into Sharon Tate. She How was could you beautiful. She was stunning. <laughs> yeah, even when she was pregnant, she was stunning. And here's the deal. Sharon invited him and a girl he was seeing to the house that night yes the mm-hmm. house and he didn't go he took the woman home mm-hmm. so it all th- this is true so it all played out like what happened if steve went because steve is a bit of a hothead and there's mainly women and one guy so you know it could have it could have turned out i don't know if you saw the movie but it could have turned out almost like the way the film ends so i leave it at that so going back to you now all right, so basically he did three films before The Blob. Did you need to address them? Girl on the Run, Somebody Up There Likes Me and Never Love a Stranger? No, it, he was still starting out. Uh, some of these are credited. 58, he actually started the Western, which he was in for, for three years. When he did The Blob and some early roles called Wanted Dead or Alive. You know, it's actually, which 
I, again, I, I don't want to touch upon this too much, but Tarantino kind of made a, a bit of a homage to this in his movie. Part of, part of the character that Leonardo DiCaprio plays is sort of based on McQueen in this show. So it's interesting. Uh, it, it wasn't bad. I used to see it quite often when I was younger because all we got was westerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then reruns of westerns in the early days of cable, folks. We got yeah, horror that. movies, sci-fi, and western reruns. I couldn't stand it. I was like, geez, all westerns everywhere. God. <laughs> but this was fun. I, I would say this. his show was a little above average because he was different, and he played it different. Yeah. So let's go to the blog. So, 1958. So, as mentioned, his first big role was as a 30-year-old teenager in this much-beloved 50 sci-fi film. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you added that in. (laughs) It actually says that. That's what I wrote. A cheesy-ass and very outdated for the era, Burt Bacharach theme song, complete with cheek-popping Mills Brothers harmonies. I said samba rhythms. actually cha-chas. And silly lyrics. Beware of the blob it creeps and and slides and grinds to the door. It crawls around the walls and... Beware. Kicks off this. classic clients from that, man. Kicks Dave, off. CO2, Dave. Bring the CO2. <laughs> it kicks off this tail of an alien jelly from outer space <laughs> that eats living matter, slips in and out of pipes and crevices, and eventually grows as large as a house until they finally discover how to stop it by freezing it. But as usual with these sort of things, the fun's as much in the details and the character business as the monster rampage itself. And this one's all about a bunch of overage youngsters trying to convince the local authorities that they really did see a monster, but their history of drag racing, pranks, and other fairly harmless bits of teenage rebellion have left the stodgy old men in power rather jaundiced towards anything they say. Even the sympathetic Officer Dave, who knows the kids are alright, so to speak. It's weirdly shot and lit, with a cross between an overly vibrant technicolor and gel lighting that makes everything vibrant but wrong somehow. There's a lot of use of shadows and barely lit rooms illuminated mostly by desk lamps and such. The whole thing's set at night, which makes its mix of noir-esque lighting and unearthly day glow oddly claustrophobic, which is well-suited to the film's story and atmosphere. It leaves everything feeling quite dreamlike and bizarre. McQueen delivers a very jittery, uncertain performance that's pretty evocative of the sort of confusion you tend to have as a teenager, but instead of a quavering voice or staring at their feet, it's more of this nervous energy and mix of stuttering, giggling, and mumbling that marks his delivery, but never goes over the top like it was someone like Brando or... As we'll discuss later, the detestable Dustin Hoffman. The film is popular with nobodies, which leaves things even more oddly believable. There's no recognizable faces to pull the viewer out of their immersion. And it's done by a director with very few credits and first-time producer, actually, Jack H. Harris, who will go on to the wonderful Jack Hill Equinox and the weird hippie comedy sequel, Son of or Beware of the Blob, directed by, of all people, Larry Hagman, and featuring not only exploitation regular Marlene Clark and Corman standby Sid Haig, but Jesus Rockers, Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill as pot-smoking teens, the latter alongside Laverne and Shirley Sidney Williams yet. I was more surprised than anybody to see this one, as well as the aforementioned Equinox and both his reworked 70s release version and the original 60s college film it derived from come out through the auspices of Criterion of all labels, but they've been taking more chances of late with a lot of Japanese monster horror and crime pictures alongside the expected Hori Arthouse favorites, so kudos to them. It really does look nice on blue. Oh, yo, this is uh, I, we're going to take shit for this one, so I'll say it's a fan favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I liked it, you know, as a kid, and I saw that, actually, I think this is the second time it's gotten a blue release. Really? And, yeah, I saw the Criterion Blue, and I was like, wow, yeah. you know, it looks nice, you know, and... and it's a fun film. It's funny. Yeah, he's he's 30 when he did this. Uh, no, 28, right? Yeah, 28. He was 28. So, yeah, nearly 30. And so, but it's funny, y'all. He's, he's authoritative, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's one of the few that period McQueen 
pictures where he's authoritative. He really doesn't do that for another 10 years. The Thomas Crown affair. Yeah, that's not to say we're, we're not going to discuss films that are really good or bad coming up in the 10 years. You know, his, his first 15 years uh, in feature films, there's a lot of big titles in there. Uh, mm-hmm. then, then it kind of kind of winds down a little bit. But, yeah, it, it's, it's fun. It's a fun movie. And, uh, you know, it's exploitation. It was done for the, on the cheap, and yet it was a breakout picture. And mm-hmm. for him, a breakout role. So uh, next up, he does something called the St. Louis Bank Robbery in 1959. It's mm. a cheap ersatz late 50s take yeah. on the far more likable Dog Day Afternoon, which we talked about in our Pacino show. This is another pull from the headlines, locals playing their actual roles as bank staffers and such kind of thing. The difference is this is from 1959 rather than the anti-establishment mid-70s, so it feels more film noir, the tone more conservative and focused on beating out punishment. Everyone in both films are doomed by their actions, but rather than the clueless bungling and attempted assistance that everyone offers in a later film, here it's all about poor naive Steve McQueen who got booted out of college on a scandal and who lets guilt and lack of prospects get him talked into playing first wheelman and then into an active shooter role in the bank heist. There's a whole subplot about this girl who got booted out of school with him and his trying to help her and her sleazy brother, only for his partners to kill her and increasingly incriminate him. But for a United Artists picture, this just looks public domain cheap, with murky sound, washed out black and white visuals, even some kinescope wrecks used to period television like sci-fi theater come off better quality than this. And despite getting a lot of screen time, McQueen doesn't really get to do much other than mope and look put upon throughout. Complete junk. I wouldn't say complete junk. It looks to me like maybe it was... Uh... My take on this is it was it may have been I, I and I can't really find much to support this theory of mine. It may have been done for television, and then with the sudden success theatrical off the blob, maybe they decided to go, you know, theatrical with this, which which happened a lot in the '60s, especially the mid to late '60s. Man from Uncle is an example. Mm-hmm. So my idea is the blob sudden breakout hit. It becomes you know he's been on TV already for two years. But suddenly it's a breakout thing for him. And so maybe they said, oh, what do we have? Oh, this guy does this thing for TV because it really looks like a TV production. And, okay, if it was, in fact, an independent film picked up by United Artists, it was a very cheap independent Mm -hmm. film. We've discussed many exploitation, you know, something weird type independent films, you know, those kind of things. And it just looks bereft of production values. I mean, really ugly-looking, I've seen more expensive-looking productions with somebody like Whit Boyd than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what the deal was, but I have to hazard to guess that maybe that was the case. But it didn't do anybody any good because it got, after its release, it got relegated to the, the pile of lesser McQueen films and sort of forgotten. And you know what's funny? We say PD because that's whereabouts you can find it nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to a lot of dollar stores or Dollar General, and then you're going, you know, hey, every so often I do look at those racks. You never know what you're going to oh, find. Oh, yeah, sometimes find good stuff. And, yeah, and I'm like, oh, look, another copy of the great St. Louis bank robbery. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's really all I got to say about that. So, uh, same year, never so few. Southeast Asian locations and a notable cast probably should have elevated this war film above many of its snoozeworthy peers, but no. McQueen lucked into the role due to Sinatra playing God with his Rat Pack pals, something he apparently did quite often. In this case, Sammy Davis was supposed to have this part, but old blue eyes rankled over some mild shade Sammy threw his way in an interview, and bam, the guy's out of work. Try the new kid. The end result's like a who's who of the era. Sinatra, 
Gina Lola Brigida, Peter Lawford, Steve McQueen, Richard Johnson from the, the Haunting Zombie, Night Child, and Beyond the Door, Quatermass himself, Brian Don Levy, Charlie Bronson, James Hong, George Takai. Bronson's a real asshole who makes a quick 180 from decking a guy who calls him Hiawatha over his Navajo heritage to spouting off about taking orders from Asians. Thankfully, Sinatra's there to dress him down. You know, it's a really small world. You're blood brothers. I was once told that Kachima were very ancestors of the Navajo. I don't know anything about any big picture, but I do know you've got a big mouth. And if you open it again and start spouting off about gooks, you're going to get none of this. Lolola is a snooty rich bitch who puts poor soldier boys and Sinatra down flat, which of course means they're going to wind up together by Hollywood logic. And our man McQueen is a hard-drinking and driving grunt who beats the crap out of a pair of MPs and his hustles, bottling and selling homemade gin, speaking of gin, to fellow soldiers who can't get booze otherwise. Never trust a man who doesn't have a hankering for women. Lola's very European and seriously fucking with Sinatra, constantly pointing out how she's married to an old rich guy and not interested while going on dates with him and even inviting him to chat while she takes a bath in front of him. Cock tease much? What do you want tonight? Lasagna. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> you, you tell your boyfriend you're moving down the social scale. We'll keep you barefoot and pregnant on the edge of town. Learn to cook. Damn, I could just see the ladies lining up for that offer. Ooh, Frank. If you ever wanted to see Philip on deliver a line like, I still can't understand how the nips had us figured out, only to be told there wasn't a yellow for miles around, this film is it. Late in the film, it turns the Chinese have been playing dirty pool, taking out their foreign allies and confiscating their weapons and supplies. Of course, they trump up charges against Sinatra and company, and he's advised to either plead insanity or throw himself on their mercy, but he's got a big handful of dog tags and written orders from China proving his case, and he's not going to let him get away with it. Unfortunately, all this good stuff comes out at the very end, and a surprise, quote, happy open-ending is hurriedly tagged on to two-hour mark. Maybe if they hadn't wasted all their time in this ersatz romance between Sinatra and Lola Brigida, they might have been able to make a proper story out of all this. The location work, such as it is, feels somewhere between stock footage and second unit, with most of the film taking place on small studio sets, which takes away from things further. If you didn't go into this wanting another hagiography of Sinatra, the good guy who fights for the little people, stands up against authority, gets the girl in the end, you very likely walked out disappointed. You mean that's all we got of Bronson, McQueen, Johnson, and the rest? Just mile-a-minute racial slurs and misogyny, which is pretty damn funny to today's ears, but really rings hollow if you even think about taking it seriously, much less find yourself triggered by it all. Not a bad movie, but not a very good one either. I, I would agree with some of what you said, but I find it kind of puzzling that of, of all the Sinatra pictures, this is one of the handful that really haven't gotten a good re-release on DVD or Blu-ray with some nice extras while the people still breathe. Actually, is anybody alive still in this case? <laughs> I don't think so. But, but uh, I, I didn't dislike it as much as you did, but I found it very much uh, entertaining. And it was kind of wild preparing for the show that, oh, shit, I, I, I forgot McQueen and Sinatra together. And it's actually on the Wikipedia page, folks. If you scroll down, the, the success of Steve McQueen four years later, three years later, was was so big that when they re-released the film, it went from a supporting role to this. This is a great poster, too. I wish I had this on my wall, man. So Sinatra, Lola Bridger, Steve McQueen, there they are back to back with, with machine guns. I was like, this is a cool fucking poster, man. <laughs> It is. It represents nothing about what happened in the film. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. But it's still, it's, I'm sure if you're walking by it, you know, by then McQueen's, you know, Great Escape and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, hey, wow. And you know me, I'm not that kind, but holy shit, there's so many racial slurs in this. You think it was written by the Klan. <laughs> there, there is. And, 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 and because we're both Asian centric and it, it might bug us. This is that time period. Although, who do you blame? I mean, do, do, you, do you blame... The studio, MGM, do you, 
Sinatra, you know, it's just, it gets sticky. That thing about yeah. Sammy, uh, Sammy Davis is true, but it was short-lived because he was right back a year later. So interesting. I, I It's a fun movie. It's it's harmless. It could have been so much better. Yeah, it could have been better. You wanted to like it despite all its faults, but it just doesn't. It's not there. There's nothing there but the romance. The Big Bang is next. Magnificent Seven, 1960. Yeah. We addressed this in our Charlie Bronson show, but this is the U.S. Western remake of Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. The Elmer Bernstein score is pretty fucking cheesy and cloying, but it still stands up as one of the best non-Italian Westerns out there. You can't argue with the cast. Ewell Brenner is most commanding. Charlie Bronson, Robert Vaughn, James Coburn, and of course, the first recruit after Brenner, Steve McQueen. The plot is so simple you can fit it on the back of a cocktail napkin. A small Mexican village is continually beset by banditos led by scummy Eli Wallach, so they pull together their meager funds to get weapons, or as Brenner quickly repurposes things, gunmen to fight for them because men are cheaper than guns. Several of them are just in it for the money, but a few are crazy enough to do it just for the laughs or to prove something to themselves. Coburn with his knives, haunted killer Vaughn, and a spirited local yokel horse buckholes who's supposed to be Mexican, go figure. The Queen comes the de facto second lead after Brenner, aiding and recruiting as well as the big fight, and it's Perhaps not coincidentally, one of the few surviving characters by film's end. Even so, with a cast this big and varied, there never seems to be enough screen time for everyone to share, especially with Brenner, Buchholz, and to some extent Bronson taking up the bulk of the character business. Even so, you'll certainly never say you didn't notice McQueen here, or that he was anything but likable. It's probably the great escape, bullet, or even the blob, but for what he's given and being the sort of introspective method type he is, he does a creditable enough job. I guess you could consider a lot of McQueen's work much akin to that of Donald Sutherland, who we did a show on recently. He's more than happy to let others take the lead and just quietly bring up the rear as a strong supporting presence. And Yul Brenner was apparently pretty threatened by him that he was going to steal all his scenes. So that should say something as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's funny about Brenner. I had, I had read that as well over the years, actually. And uh, the odd thing is it's, it's not by lines or showboating. It's just no. by his presence. Steve McQueen in this movie definitely exhibits that presence that would just blow away the screen in The Great Escape, which which follows us not a year or two later. I like this movie. I actually go back to it maybe once every three years. And what are you watching? Oh, Western. Okay, see you later. But it's like, <laughs> this is a great fucking Western. I actually like the Elmer Bernstein score. Really? <laughs> it's 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 it's, it's, <laughs> in, it's in my iPod. Shut up. So, <laughs> wow. I like this. Uh, uh, nicely shut up. You know, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's funny. I didn't get to say this, or if I did, I'm repeating myself. With this kind of cast, it's very enjoyable, you know. But who the fuck is Brad Dexter? I mean, who? <laughs> yeah, sorry, Brad. But, you know, when we were, you know, when we were discussing this, uh, the last time this movie came up, so we got all these heavy hitters and all these people starting out, and they put really interesting people in, in big parts and then there's brad dexter yeah there's one nobody like who the hell is this guy <laughs> yeah exactly he he didn't even do too much tv work i'm not sure what was going on there uh, the only thing he did around this time period which is, i find interesting he actually produced the naked runner frank sinatra's lone euro spy film and apparently he clashed with sinatra over the, in that picture which Again, I don't know. Maybe he's a guy just more as a producer. Maybe he's a favor, a buddy favor. Anyway, it's a fun picture. You've got a great cast. It's You know what's interesting? I don't dislike the Denzel remake, the Magnificent Seven they did a few years back. Really? Okay. That had Chris Pratt in the McQueen part. And wow. <laughs> he, did a good, he did a good job. 
He did a good job. He, he actually, did he do the Star Lord dance? No, no. He <laughs> rose up to the occasion. He rose up to the occasion. He did a really good job. He actually like Chris Pratt not being Chris Pratt, which was nice to see him do. And the only thing they fucked up with, which is why you didn't see another one, they killed off his character. So Denzel as Chris, you know, the Yul Brenner part, rides away alone at the end. I mean, you don't kill that character off, which I think is a major misstep. But all in all, Magnificent Seven, classic for me, and a go-to on occasion. So so I did not see The Honeymoon Machine, which was his next one. Do you have anything to say about that one? I did see that. It was, it was <laughs> an attempt to put Steve into this very popular we, – we've touched on this on a lot of shows, this, most, most likely in our Tony Randall type of thing, where – Yo. No, we did not do a Tony Randall show yet. No, we didn't do a Tony <laughs> Randall show, but Tony showed up a lot of times in a lot of our shows. Do you remember yeah. this? Sure. And sure. and and the the Rock Hudson theme showed up in a lot of our shows. Yeah, Rock Hudson, Doris Day, the the names came up a lot. Rock and Tony Randall, the names came up a lot. So yo, there was this whole thing, you know, kissy kissy, lovey lovey thing. <laughs> and for some reason though, Paul Apprentice was just starting to become a thing in the early 60s. And some woman, you know, like we have a lot of European actors and actresses who were like, you know, pumping over from there to here. And so this near no one named Brigitte Baislin, who looked Eurasian, was actually born in Wisconsin. I'm not sure of her parentage. They second build her in this thing called the Honeymoon Machine. Jim Hutton, who had a, a lengthy career, mainly as a supporting actor, is a second build in this, a third build in this. And it's just like trying to do that Rock Hudson, Doris Day thing with Steve McQueen, who Steve is becoming popular now. I mean, no doubt he's becoming like a supernova thing. He's not cut for this kind of picture. No. Allegedly, Cary Grant had this role and he turned it down. How true is that? I don't know. There's not a lot of recognizable names in this movie outside of your first 10, 10 or so roles, speaking roles. I wasn't thrilled with it, to tell you the truth. All right, so next up he does Hell is for Heroes, 1962. Another middling at best war film where McQueen's the pissed off outsider for the real oddball cast. So you got McQueen, Bobby Darren as an annoying smartass type. Bob Newhart, and it's kind of hilarious to hear that nasal, pinched voice of his doing the same sort of milquetoast comic shtick he'd soon become famous for on TV here in a war film. James Coburn, Nick Adams, the goofy squad mascot, as a young Polish kid wound up hanging around with him. He's not a military guy. You know, you remember Nick Adams? He's in all these Japanese things, like Frankenstein Conquered the World or whatever. He actually killed himself because of, he told his wife he was going to leave her for, I forget which the name of the actress was, Japanese actresses, and she decided, hey, you know, I, I can screw you, but I can't marry you because you're not Japanese. And he wound up uh, hanging himself after that. Very what famous. You? Yeah, yeah. Like... Yeah, it was a very famous thing. <laughs> But those of you who know your kaiju uh, stories. But here he is in this thing as like a Polish kid that kind of hangs around with him. Like, yeah, let me hang around with this military unit see if I can get myself killed. <laughs> Very strange role. L.Q. Jones, the Witchmaker on Brotherhood of Satan. It's shot in black and white, so you know they weren't putting a lot into this one, monetarily or otherwise. At best, it's a B-grade potboiler, and even that's stretching it. At least, the busty French barmaid wasn't half bad. And did you catch the way she eyed him up while stroking that wine bottle? That was mm-hmm. pretty loaded for 1962, I'll tell you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not a great film, but definitely at least one or two enjoyable scenes and quirks in here. Not not a great film. It's it's Don Siegel. It's early Don Siegel, so I would say that. Interesting cast. What's odd about this for me, and it'll show up beginning around now, is that uh, some of the scenes, McQueen looks haunted. 
I'm not sure what was going on there. Whether he read that in or he wanted to imbibe his character. What's something? Speaking of imbibe, I heard that. So, <laughs> I yeah, again, I'm not sure if he wanted to like put some characterization into the role he was playing, or maybe there was something going on there behind the eyes. So he does he does appear haunted to me. So it adds a little grit to the film. But yeah, black and white for a picture that could have been and should have been probably shot in color interesting for a paramount movie of this time i found it interesting yeah it's like the sinatra film and you feel like this should have been a better movie and yet it isn't mm. so next up is one that really isn't good the war lover 1962 same year british war film that's even more of a melodrama than a damn sinatra film mcqueen's a hotshot flyboy he's really kind of a dick he's in danger of his squad and breaks rules at every turn just to show off or because he's not happy with an order which is fine if he was on his own, but the guy's getting his pals killed and botching missions. So He's also got a more introspective co-pilot, Robert Wagner, who thinks he's great until he tries to screw with the guy's relationship with one of those English Rose types just because he can. It's pretty hard to sit through, particularly with another narcissistic sociopath running the country right now. Really not a good film at all. It's just a bad melodrama. It's it's not a good film, and oddly, like McQueen was taking a step back there, even though he's the star of the movie. And actually, it's just one of those early Robert Wagner pictures where he got more of the notice for this yeah. movie. Taking a look at it nowadays, you'll you'll notice how I, I think Wagner figured this out. Something was going on there that maybe McQueen wasn't digging the movie or digging the role. He's a star, folks, that he just wasn't really, you know, the other picture, he was doing something interesting with the character, I believe. This movie, he's taking a step back. He's the fucking star. So I think this was maybe Wagner's chance to like, well, let me try a little harder and be less showboaty. And actually, young Robert Wagner actually walks away with this movie uh, for what it is. Interesting film. A lot of people like it. I thought it was okay, you know, but not entirely bad. Yeah, she make a very valid point there. Robert Wagner is doing a Steve McQueen role. He's very understated and yet manages to steal the picture. Right. Yes. So next up is probably the big one, The Great Escape, 1963. We talked this much-beloved war-slash-heist film in our Bronson show, where a number of British character actors and a sprinkle of American ones attempt a large-scale escape from a German prison camp. But that's not all there is to it. Talk about amazing cast. Just look who's in this thing. Steve McQueen, James Garner from The Rockford Files, Charlie Bronson, James Colburn, Donald Pleasance, who we're going to do a show on, Anthony Hopkins, David McCallum, Richard Attenborough, Gordon Jackson from The Professionals. Whew! It's obviously a star for a casting job, and even at a three-hour running time, there's simply not enough room to give everyone as much of a chance to shine as we might like. But that said, it's a lot different from, say, The Dirty Dozen, where there's a major focus on one or two leading characters, and everyone else sort of picks up the dregs in between all the plot and action. Maybe because this is more of a three-hots-and-a-cop prison drama, while there's plenty going on and a lot of top talent involved, everyone does get at least a few good scenes along the way, and it's reasonably well-balanced. I mean, you don't see a hell of a lot more of, say, McQueen than you do of Bronson or Colburn, or that much more Pleasance than Hopkins or even Gordon Jackson. So it does work out. Everyone's allowed a fair bit of breathing room, which is a real change for most of these sort of films. And while you get a few tense escape sequences and even more motorcycle stunt work courtesy of McQueen, this one's far more akin to a comparative character piece like Kelly's Heroes than it ever is Dirty Dozen or one of those low-grade Richard Attenborough jobs that we talked about in shows like our Donald Sutherland one. Mm. It may not have bombshells and military action, and there's absolutely zero staff interest here. In fact, there's not a woman in the cast unless you count some cameo work during the final escape to the local village. But this is a perfect example of a war film done right all about character and building cinematic tension and dramatic tension, rather than just bombast and fluff. It took me a long time, I'll admit, to really come around and appreciate how good this film 
is, but I'm definitely one among its many fans. And actually, just casually, it came up with another guy who's a big film aficionado in my circle who's starting to make films himself. And he just brought it up out of the blue. It's like, you know, Steve McQueen, oh, The Great Escape. I love that film. One of my favorites. I didn't even mention it. So it says a lot. It's a really good film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we discussed this uh, in, in the Bron- Bronson show. And, you know, who, who was written a very nice role as the guy with claustrophobia was the Tunnel King. Yes. Uh, and and McQueen, McQueen has this great role that it, speak, it spoke to him. And I think that's why he latched onto it. It got him that loner thing because he's a loner. But it got... It got it spoke to him and the fact that he's a captain, so they have to. This guy is going to look up to him, and he's doing he's doing this stuff for a combination of things because he's a rebel. That's you know you got the rebel Steve McQueen, you got the loner Steve McQueen, and you got the authoritative Steve McQueen. So it's really interesting and and getting that ball and bouncing it against the walls. Mm-hmm. Not that one, folks, but you know <laughs> that <would> hurt. <laughs> Yeah, some people might be into that. We'll, we'll do that show later. It, it's really interesting. Like, at, you know, when he goes back and they, they throw him the ball in the glove at, near the end of the movie. And it's like, the, it's just it just speaks so much, you know. Yeah, it becomes symbolic. Yeah, and, and you know, that motorcycle, Steve, which he did, which is really interesting. You know, it's, it's like, oh, we didn't know Steve McQueen did stunt work on motorcycles. A guy could have got killed jumping over some of those things, man. This is such a great film. I mean, you know, again, touching on James Coburn and, and all these guys. James Garner, Donald Pleasance, who's slowly going blind. And it's just great film. McQueen is, he has star billing, by the way, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. He's still shining and it's just bolstered everybody, including, oddly enough, it's it's really lengthy running time, you know, for a picture of that time period. You know, it's just like they, United Artists, just probably just probably saw the dailies of this thing and said, all right, make it as long as you want. <laughs> yeah. A lot of films from this period, when they start pushing the two-plus-hour mark or two-and-a-half-hour, God help you, you can feel every minute. Yeah. This you don't really notice. Oh, it's strange. It could have been longer. Yeah, and I would mind it. Minded it. Yeah, great movie. So next up, you want to talk about Soldier in the Rain and maybe Love of the Proper Stranger? Yeah, Soldier in the Rain, a really interesting <sighs> movie. Build as a buddy film, not really. It's like... How do you sell this picture, even with the uh, posters? Ralph Nelson, who went on to Soldier Blue and very strange work, directed this film about two two sergeants, uh, a career sergeant and a master sergeant. Jackie Gleason, of all people, Steve McQueen. Okay, <laughs> right away it doesn't sound like a, a buddy thing that's going to work. And they go on these adventures and misadventures and uh, get into trouble, bar haps, bar fights, loving girls. And... Underneath this all, underneath this all, there's this, and, 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 and if anyone who's seen this film, you, you will not disagree with me. There's this really obvious homoerotic subtext going on between Gleason and Steve McQueen. And the very end of the film, you see that, and, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's like a surprising and nearly shattering end that they left in this film, and you're like... What's going on here? Why does this guy feel like this? It's I don't want to give too much away, but this this is uh, maybe someone like David Del Val, if you actually listen to our show, who's in tune to films of this type, or someone can can confirm this. But it definitely looked like they tried to sneak in in the guise of a buddy wartime movie, which has more drama scenes and has buddy comedic scenes. A homoerotic tale between two men in love, but they neither one wants to admit it. Really interesting film. 
You actually catch it to some degree in a lot of buddy films, but yeah, this sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I, now I'm curious about it. I, yeah, <laughs> and I think after you see it, you're going you're gonna to tell me, like, holy shit, you're right. Did you see Love with the Proper Stranger? Yeah, this is this one. I, I'll just touch on it because Robert Redford and Paul Newman are doing these type of films around this, this time period, uh, early 60s, 63, 64. Uh, James Dean had started the whole thing off. But Redford and Newman were your go-to guys for these type of movies. <laughs> McQueen plays... Rocky Papasano. Okay, yeah. Not looking like that, buddy. <laughs> He's in love with this woman. She's a sales clerk. And very odd, very strange, kind of downbeat drama. Robert Mulligan, who was very interesting, a good director of actors for many years. He did a lot of good work. Made this movie. He, it, Robert Mulligan, his, his brother, Richard, well-known character actor years later, things like soap and other things and, and movies uh, beside television. You know, it's it's an unlikable film, though, because it's it's about these two people in love. And then one, without going too much into it, movies I think are interesting that you didn't see. I like to not speak of too much just to say anyone gets around to seeing this. It kind of comes out unlikable at the end, even though it doesn't end entirely downbeat. It ends on an uplifted note. It's one that's a little tainted. Strange movie. Again, they tried to make Steve McQueen the Robert Redford of a time. You know, again, odd, which Baby the Rain Must Fall is another picture. Again, I don't know. Him as a romantic yeah. Did you see that one? Yes, I did, believe it or not. So, 1965, with a title that seems pulled right over a Bob Dylan song or a Neil Adams story title, this stinker of a melodrama makes McQueen the unlikeliest of wild-eyed southern rockabilly singers, an ex-con who is down for killing somebody in a knife fight. Now, I'm a huge Cramps fan. I grew up with a father who is from that culture and always singing songs that later in life I recognize as all these crazy hard-ass rockabilly tracks. You know, we're not talking about the fake shit like whatever Ricky Nelson was doing or Elvis after his Amazing Sun Studios days. This is the real deal, like Joe Clay, Carl Perkins, Charlie Feathers, that kind of stuff. A lot of these guys cut one record and vanish, and they're not only high energy, but have some crazy, often hyper-violent lyrics. It's amazing stuff, and very likely my favorite music genre if you limit it to its late 50s heyday. And trust me, other than the knife fight jail time backstory, nothing about McQueen's character says rockabilly here. So anyway, his wife, Lee Remick of all people, and daughter jump on a bus and head cross-country to reunite with him. He's been living with a foster family since getting out of stir, unbelievably getting beaten by the old bag on a regular basis. Now that his family showed up, she keeps trying to threaten him into going straight or getting thrown back in the can, but she winds up passing on, which prompts him to shoot up her possessions and desecrate her grave. Meantime, local cop has started fling with his wife, so when McQueen winds up going down for the second time, Remick gets a quote-unquote happy ending. Yay? Holy shit, these Steve McQueen films are some of the worst I had to cover since we started the podcast. Yeesh. I it's I never liked this movie. I, um, how could you? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a screenplay by Horton Foote based on a play he did in '54. Yes, that Horton Foote, well-respected uh, playwright, theatrical playwright, book author, etc. Another Robert Mulligan film. For some reason, I think we have a different studio than we had before. For some reason, people thought maybe McQueen broke out with with a couple of pictures. Yo, let's make put him in these heavy, heavy kind of vehicles, which were more, again, uh, you know, the Redford, Paul Newman type things of the, that period. And it wasn't really his forte. I will put it that way. He looks uncomfortable in this one particularly. And he's asked a lot to do in this. I think he did much better than Cincinnati Kid. 
Holy shades of the sting. Now, this is 1965. We get a film about hustling poker. And hard to believe, it's packed with big names. Steve McQueen, Edward G. Robinson, Anne Margaret, Carl Malden, Tuesday Well, Joan Blondell, Rip Torn, and Cab Calloway. About the only reason to watch this one is that this staff interest with both crazy Tuesday Weld and blows the end Margaret, looking their career best as McQueen's girlfriend and the cheating bimbo who seduces him, almost breaking them up. There's a lot of cheating going on with rig dealers and folks sleeping around to try to ruin reputations, personal relations, and beat other players at the table for big stakes. But honestly, who cares? If you're a gambler, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. Everyone knows the odds are astronomically stacked against the player. Tables are rigged. The games are fixed. You're throwing away what you have in hand for some will-of-the-wisp dreamland. It's asinine. And sorry, but gambling is not a sport by any definitions. However you feel about it in principle, the only thing more boring than playing, quote, games of chance, and I do put that in quotes, is watching someone else do it. How do you think that leaves this film? Well, I know it did well for the studio. It did well for McQueen. It actually where he, as a romantic lead in a couple of pictures, it didn't do so, he didn't do so well. Not for lack of trying, uh, let's say, to be kind, but, you know, they just weren't the right roles for him. But now, they, it looked like with this movie, they, they kind of keyed into his more distaff appearance and personality. So I don't think it's a terrible film. It's not, not my kind of movie. I remember seeing this. I didn't like the other one either. Uh, Paul Newman picture with Jackie Gleason about pool, sh- uh, pool hustling. But that being said, uh, it's an interesting film, interesting, colorful character actors supporting it. The ladies look lovely. You know, Tuesday Wells, who went on to become a complete nut. Mm-hmm. And Margaret looks stunning in this, as you said. Um, there's there's a lot of interesting people in this. And McQueen kind of rises to the challenge of kind of like, okay, this is maybe something more that speaks to me so I can do this role more easily than, than wooing a girl or singing rockabilly. So uh, I, 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 I like this more than you did, but I like Nevada Smith a lot. Did you watch that? Yeah, so anyway, Nevada Smith, yeah, 1966. Just like Elvis and Charo or Stay Away Joe, William Shatner and White Comanche or someone we haven't done a show on yet, Burt Reynolds in Navajo Joe. I still do want to do that show, though. Uh, Steve McQueen is a half-breed... Burt Reynolds? Yeah. Yeah, we should. Steve McQueen is a half-breed Indian. Q shares doing half-breed, whose folks get raped and murdered by a bunch of scummy gold prospectors out in, well, Nevada. Despite looking very much like a man in his 50s, McQueen is supposed to be in his teens, early 20s, and despite being so green he doesn't know how to fight or shoot a damn gun, goes out looking for revenge. Luckily, folks tend to help him, from family affairs Brian Keith to a pair of girls he bangs along the way. First, the oddly edible fling with a whore from his mother's tribe, Woody Allen regular Janet Margolin, who patches him up and teaches him to read after nearly losing to old drunken Martin Landau in a knife fight. And then a swamp rat who guides him to his neck victim, Bob Newhart regular and Tom Poston's wife, Suzanne Plachette. Of course, he's got to ditch the first one and the second one gets killed, but hey, it's a western. A lot of weird casting choices, like 1776's lovable Ben Franklin, Howard De Silva, as a two-fisted prison camp warden who decks McQueen on first meeting. The aforementioned Landau and Plachette. Horror film regular Struther Martin from Nightwing, Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, and his Brotherhood of Satan co-star L.Q. Jones from The Witchmaker and Beasts Within. Even WKRP and Burt Reynolds' ex Lonnie Anderson help out, but this is a fairly standard Western revenge tale, where our hero goes from naive and untested to savvy and patient infiltrator, taking his time to settle up to his victim in order to gain his confidence before the final setup. It's still very American Western in look, approach, and feel, but it's easily his best Western outside of Magnificent Seven, and the first that really gives McQueen a lead role. 
role. He's still pretty subdued and introspective, even noted silent-type Clint Eastwood is far more prone to grandstanding and speech-making by comparison. But it's definitely among the handful of good films he did amongst what turned out to be a very spotty career. I won't say I like this film, but it's definitely one of his best westerns. Um, my take is this, there's, outside of the Euro westerns, Leone, Compadres, you know, Carbucci, Carbucci, and, and, you know, the handful of others, you know, the Terrence Hill, Bud Spencer things, you know, selected titles. I always liked this movie. It's not a great film coming from me. It's not a great film. But I will say, you know, Henry Hathaway is a good director. He's he's done yeoman work. You know, he, he did a lot of TV. He did a lot of Westerns for John Wayne. He did a lot of, you know, that was his thing. You know, it's like, you know, you can't blame these guys. With it. It's a living <laughs> and, yo, know, as far as the directors go, you do some good work here. We give you a couple of good feature films that make money. You're going to do more of these feature films. Okay, you did good with this guy. You know, it's a thing. And I get that. And Henry Hathaway, I, I have to say, you know, yeoman, a yeoman director, occasionally did above average work. I think it's above average film. I really like this film. Again, in the handful of Westerns, I really like that a not European Lansden film. I this is one of the one of my top favorites. I I like coming after three or four years of doing Wanted Dead or Alive and doing quite a few films all of a sudden as a lead. They they cast McQueen back into a western for a feature film and I like this one. I it's a revenge western. I prefer this. Oh no, nailed to the fucking cross. <laughs> I prefer prefer this to a lot of the Eastwood westerns really? not all a lot of them because i kind of i kind of dug the way where i felt that mcqueen was really on the edge brutalized you know doing a revenge thing and i like the way he goes about it and you know my my favorite western of all time is once upon a time in the west and i will always say that but there, there are inklings of this euro thing in this too you know i, I hate to use that word again and bad, but I'm sure by now it's soaked in. This is 66. How many of these things were already released after the Euro spy craze and the and the Euro westerns, spaghetti western craze already leaked into America? And so there's like a lot of crossover. You know, this is all American cast, for, you know, for the most part, except for Ralph alone. But <laughs> I like this. And I thought he did a decent job. Apparently it's a much longer version, but. Be that as it may, I, I like Nevada Smith. I, I thought McQueen did a really good job. Revenge Western, and it encompasses a period of time, too, which I kind of liked. I, he had to age mentally, if not physically, for the role, which which shows to me some maturity in him as a, as a person as well as an actor. I like this. So next up, 1966, is The Sand Pebbles. Notable mm. mainly is one of the few film appearances of the authoress, or according to some sources, wife and subject of Emmanuel Arsan, who penned a few wonderfully decadent self-titled novels about sexual libertinage in the late 50s. I mean, seriously, I often mention Saad as I do Franco and other filmmakers who lean towards the philosophic and kink, but the first Emmanuel book, and to a lesser extent, Pauline Riage's Story of O, really stand alone in that respect. These are true decadent philosophy books, not just about free love and uninhibited exploration of sexuality, but that actually speak to the deeper thought behind the physicality. It's what separates 70s erotica from Skidamax and the Red Shoe Diaries. There's an enormous gulf separating the two in quality, effect, and value. So if you ever want to see the lady herself, I believe this film and Laura, otherwise known as Forever Emmanuel, with Annie Bell are your only chances. But the weird cast doesn't stop with our son, here under her real name of Maria Andrian, by the way, because you've got future endlessly lengthy and boring 
boring war filmmaker Richard Attenborough, the ever wooden real life Charlie McCarthy and Murphy Brown herself, Candace Bergen, Mako of Conan fame, Kolchak's boss Simon Oakland, the Love Boat's goofy Captain Steuben, Gavin McLeod, James Hong, and Beulah Quo as Mama Chunk. <laughs> believe that credit. Unfortunately, this is another one that's more melodrama than war film with our son, the subject of a whole world of Susie Wong in miniature, McQueen falling for Bergen for some ungodly reason, and befriending fellow engine room worker Mako, despite racial tensions on the ship, so while it's well acted, it's pretty stodgy and hard to watch at times, particularly at a three hour plus length. There's even a depressing ending, which you don't expect American films of this vintage. It's watchable, but yeah, not one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I agree with you on all, all points. Yes, uh, Emmanuel is in this film. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I watch this a number of times over my life. And hopefully my life has another good 10, 15, 20 years plus. If Keith is still alive, I'm still going. <laughs> so uh, is that. I don't know. I just never warmed to this movie. Although I will say, I will say that this was Steve McQueen's first and only the Academy Award. Academy Awards nominated him for Best Actor for this movie. And uh, oddly enough, it's a supporting role. Actually, there's no major role in this movie. Anybody watches The Sand Pebbles, there's no major role in this film. So, if anything, it should have been supporting, which is probably why he didn't win. But Steve was nominated Best Lead Role, which is nice. He he actually won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, which is, hey, what the Academy should have done. I know, in retrospect, and we can have a discussion of this one time, yo, what do awards mean? Some people don't want to show up. Some people show up. I'd be very surprised if Joaquin Phoenix ever shows up. <laughs> you have to see Joker. That's another thing. But I'm fascinated by your comparison of it to the cinema of transgression of New York cinema back in the 90s, like Richard Kern, Lydia Lunch, and Yes, yes. Nick it's Zed. not what you thought it you thought it was something else, and I could see by what you briefly wrote, right? I could see what you wrote, and what you wrote to me offline, what you thought it was going to be like. Like like a Man of Steel, or, or maybe Batman versus Superman? No. This is entirely a... How did they, how did they finance this? What did they think of the dailies? Why, in the end, did they decide to just go with it? I'm flabbergasted. Wow. And then by the, I will say this, by the last hour, by the last hour, you have to really, if you can, I I don't know how you feel about downloadable sites and stuff, because it's the cheapest and easiest way to see stuff sometimes. (laughs) I watch it in two parts, and uh, 1080p, so so it's just like going to theater. So I watch it second half, which is like, Oh, my God. And then shit happens that negates what you saw in the first part. And then you're thinking, oh, no. <laughs> so it's it's not really going to go that way. And it's sort of like, oh, this is so fucked up. And those of you who have seen Lydia Lunch's early work or uh, yeah. Nick Zed or particularly Richard Kern, like I mentioned specifically huh? Sewing Circle and Right Side of My Brain, which had Lydia in it. Right Side of My Brain, which is the thing. Yeah, that's a shit back in the day. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can't even picture how this would relate to that. So you, you've actually got me really curious when I had no interest whatsoever before. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So why did I name check those three? And I'll tell you that. We're going to segue back into Steve in a second. I mentioned those three because that was the vibe I got. That was the vibe I got because they did so well New York area in that time and what the feeling was living there and what the feeling was living there if you were destitute or nearly uh-huh. struggling. 
that's where I was and at then, that time. That's why it resonated so yeah. well. Yeah, and and then yeah, exactly. That's me too. And then what it was, if you felt you were talented and not accepted, and you know, of course, it's a leap. Let's say between whether you whether this character is talented or not, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And then fantasies, how fantasies and reality collide and clash and overleap. And then you have this. This ending to this movie, which is so fucking like, oh, you are so fucked up. <laughs> now, I grant you, the guy who made Hangover 1, 2, and 3, and you know what? Though, if you've seen those three films, there's dark spots in those movies. Like It's like, yeah, okay, they're funny, but they're dark. And the third one had this joke that I was like, oh, I'm sure that you had more to this. They so don't let you get away with this part. So, which are not, you know, don't dismiss those three pictures unless you've never seen them. They're actually something going on there and this is like okay you could say look scorsese you know okay with taxi driver mean streets okay yeah you could see that but you can also see this could have been made then it's that kind of thing and this guy is so fucking disturbing oh my god (laughs) yeah i mean i heard some taxi driver comparisons but again i'm not a scorsese guy but when you mentioned that the other directors i'm like whoa Oh, yeah. There's some stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I was talking to a guy at work. He said, well, what did you think? I said, you know, he's giving a bath to his naked mother, and it's a little disturbing to me, and and there's nothing erotic about it, but just was all kinds of wrong. Yeah, that sounds very Zed-like to me. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then all of a sudden, the next-door neighbor lady and him are sharing a dinner, and I just knew that something was not quite right here. And, and the I get the, aut- he could be autistic or on the spectrum, whatever that means nowadays, it's got a thinly veiled thing going on. He will just laugh into a different personality and, and and then there's very disturbing stuff because he was told one thing in his life later on in his life during the course of this movie and he believes it and he believes that everything else he was told was a lie so he shows up at a place and he tells someone oh I know who I am now I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to give anything away to you or anyone else and they're like are you crazy so everything he believes is a lie everything he knows is a lie everything that was told to him is a lie or not and that's what's really you have to see this and if you hate it don't yell at me <laughs> <laughs> so back to Steve McQueen next up is yes. the Thomas Crown Affair in 1968 the world's oh. most inappropriately fay theme song from Noel Harrison kicks off a perfectly shit soundtrack from Michelle Legrand Starting things off on a very wrong foot for this off-reference, but honestly, rather meh, heist film from Noren Jewison, who gave us Injustice for All, which we talked in our Al Pacino show, Rollerball, and Jesus Christ Superstar, of all things. So this is not a high point from a guy that actually did a few really good films. Equally inappropriate Woodstock-style multi-camera split-screen shooting further distances the viewer, as we're given a poorly-dressed Steve McQueen as a rich stockbroker and business CEO, if you can believe that. What's next? Clint Eastwood as a famous orator, Charlie Bronson as Louis the Sun King, and Yafik Kodo who, like most of the cast, gets a little more than a glorified bit part here, looks uncomfortable in a color mismatch fedora. What follows is a cross between the far superior James Coburn vehicle, the Internecine Project, and the Italian job minus the lame comedy or Michael Caine, and we talked that stinker in our Michael Caine show, 
where McQueen recruits all these dopes sight unseen by phone or pulp serial style from behind darkened windows and over an intercom to work a phone checkpointed bank robbery and drop in a nearby cemetery just for the intellectual challenge and kicks. Faye Dunaway, who liked a very similar Blythe Danner, was something of a name back in the 70s for whatever reason, shows up as an insurance investigator looking into the heist who goes from circling the wagons to literally playing chess with McQueen before falling into bed with him. Of course, this compromises her to the point where she not only can't pin it on him, but where he sets up another heist with her in on it as a test of loyalty. Before she can decide one way or the other, he gets away and she's left pounding roll credits. Honestly, about the best you can say here is there's a lot of exploitation-style you-are-there location footage of Boston's tunnels, bridges, and graffiti-strewn parks, which at times left me wondering if they were actually shooting the bridge and tunnels, at least, of New York. There's a lot of similarities there. They even shop at a Woolworths Five and Dime, though you never really get to see inside just how sleazy and run down those places were. No moldy rolls on display, no greasy spoon-style diner right up against the clothes racks. Hey, I like those places. No backroom arcades to score drugs at. It's a shame. They really missed an opportunity going inside there. What really leaves the viewer golf-smacked about all this is how all that split-screen stuff during the setup and heist sequences was just to speed the proceedings up to allow double extra time for it. Wait for it. A good hour of dead air entirely dedicated to the half-assed, quote, romance. He takes your doom buggy and picnic on the beach, he flies her out to a private field, they play chess, they eat out, they spend a lot of time talking in bed, and you know, it's Steve McQueen, he's got a hard edge, he's not exactly Mr. GQ model, and fucking Faye Dunaway, who's stiffer than Jane Fonda, and not exactly a stunner, I gotta be honest. I mean, I used to have a thing for blondes, and not once in my life did I ever say, ooh, that Faye Dunaway, she really gets my motor running. I mean, I can't picture who could say that, she's pretty boring and icy. Maybe this is why the film bears some sort of reputation, because it's more of a romance and couples film than it ever is an action or attention-based heist and guy film. I don't know, but all I can tell you is, despite his reputation, it kind of sucks. Well, I, I know you told me you were sent the wrong one to review. Yes. And I, I guess you didn't watch it. No. You returned it? Yeah, I did. It's really good. And it's, it's you know, we, we discussed Pierce Boston a number of times, especially during our James Bond movies. The remake is so much better. And the remake nails the story. This is what the remake should have been. <laughs> and it was. The remake is good. Renee Zellweger... Pierce Brosnan, it was like, for how many years since then, people say, where's the sequel? This one, we don't want a sequel because there's <laughs> a problem with this movie. Yes. It tries to be, it's 1968, folks. Norman Jewison coming off a career, a very good career as a t- TV guy. <laughs> you know, we're talking about working with Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and a great cinematographer, Haskell Wexler. Hal Ashby's one of the directors. But here's the problem. They try to be experimental in Hollywood Big Cheese Land. And split screens, diopter effects, before Brian De Palma really made it a thing. And I just got annoyed by this film. Yeah. First time I watched it, I didn't like it. Second time. So I rewatched it for the show, and I said, I'm already annoyed. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt, yeah. First of all, how can you like any characters when 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 you're bouncing back and forth, left and right, and... The split screen is is jarring too. The way the way they, the editors timed out was like bang, 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 bang. But did you notice it's, that it was always during the heist, whereas they were just trying to leave this, all this empty dead space for the supposed romance? Well, not always during the heist. Sometimes they would like pick up a phone call, boom, somebody picks it up on the other end. I'm like, okay, I, I get it. You guys are like really stoned. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody came up with this idea, you know, because. I, I, I just, it's an alienating film. It has a, a very big following 
a positive following. I, I don't get it. Michelle Legrand, yeah, the guy who killed the Sean Connery uh, reentry into the Bond cannon. You remember but that? But I like that Never Say Never Again. That theme song is much better than this piece of shit. No, get out of here. <laughs> but Windmills of Your Mind was oh, a huge hit. God, a horrible song. Well, that was a huge hit. Yeah. Don't ask me why. <laughs> For somebody. So was MacArthur uh, Park. So what does that say? <laughs> That's a cool song to listen to when you smoke a drink. <laughs> Figured you'd drop something heavier than that to listen to that song. <laughs> now, Faith Dunaway, interesting. What was that John Carpenter thing with her? Or was it, oh no, was Erin Kirshner, but Carpenter wrote the screenplay. Doesn't matter. It just, oh, now you can make me look it up. Hold on, folks. <laughs> it's a real-time thing. It was... Eyes of Laura Mars. Getting back to the film in hand, it's it's alienating. I well, personally, I found it was alienating. I didn't like the way they did things, and but I kind of it's almost like a lead into the bizarreness of Bullet. And those of you who are wine drinkers out there, I do recommend the not for flavor because the flavor is kind of bitter compared to the others, but the Menage a Trois Decadence really knocks you for a loop. So I have I, I have a bottle of that right. Do you really? Here. Okay. Because I prefer the regular and the midnight. Midnight's my favorite. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> if I seem a little off, you know why. All right. Bullet. Bullet, 1968, same year. Perhaps the single film Steve McQueen is most identified with and likely a major bump in the status and sales of both Mustangs and Chargers for the next decade or so. This one's more about style and substance, but works pretty damn well for it. McQueen is a crusty cop assigned to witness protection relating to an anti-mafia court case. The witness thinks he's getting a visit from the senator he's under protection of and winds up the victim of a hit with McQueen blamed for it. But all's not exactly as it seems, and the dead man keeps turning up around town. It's clear that there's more than one layer to this conspiracy. There's a cast of oddball character actors here, including Steve McQueen, yes. Robert Vaughn, Kolchak's boss Simon Oakland, Sexy Deep and Day for Night star Jacqueline Bissett, Robert Duvall, don't Ask Me, Ask God, and Three's Company star Norman Fell, Grumpy Old Mel from Alice, Vic Tabak. It's a bit too 60s to work as the sort of green cop film it's trying to be. There'll be many far better ones coming shortly thereafter and running throughout the 70s. But what it's really best remembered for is this incredibly long car chase sequence as his Mustang GT chases down a Dodge Charger through the crazy hills of San Francisco. There have been other wild chase scenes since, one of the most memorable being Sergio Solomon's Violent City, which we talked about in our Bronson show. But this was the first and still most cited one to which all others have since inevitably found themselves compared. It's still pretty cool. At the time, it was considered amazing and groundbreaking. Outside of that, just enjoy the familiar faces, and while she's hardly on the screen long enough, a bit of Jackie Bissett really never hurts. Oh, it's a weird movie. It's, it's in a ways that you can compare it to parts of The Mechanic, the Michael Winner film, where you know a lot of The Mechanic, including the beginning, is without dialogue. A lot of this film is sans dialogue, which is really Do you also feel a comparison to Clute with it? I, yes, I kind of the clue too. Yes, there's a comparison to Clute too. It's funny, you know, uh, Robert Vaughn comes off as such a big fucking dick in this movie, which is pretty much close to his real life persona. <laughs> uh, it, it's interesting. He was like this guy on The Man from Uncle, like, oh, y'all, like, uh, solo, and we want the Napoleon solo, and he's like a hero, and the secret agent guy, and then every movie he does, he's a fucking dick. <laughs> And, and this is one of those movies, like one of the first. Like it wasn't until he did the uh, British uh, show, which we mentioned. What, The Protectors? Uh, the Protectors, where he was like a little warmer. but uh, <laughs> Comparatively. <laughs> Comparatively, yes. Um, but, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of weird stuff. 
is too. A lot of nighttime shooting, not with guns, folks. Like a lot of nighttime for cinematography, bouncy, bouncy San Francisco. I was there. It's like that. Yes, and I have no idea what it's like going down those streets. It's like oh, I could not imagine people are riding bikes down those fucking hills. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> uh, about ten years ago, I was in San Francisco uh, for about three days, and I was like, "You're kidding me!" Yeah, I, I felt like I felt there. like I was at an amusement park ride. I was like, "They're lucky that it's the west, so they don't have like ice storms and things." Can you picture in the winter? Oh <laughs> man, and go, going you know going uphill, you have to go into second, but going downhill, you got to go to third. Yeah, and, and it's crazy wild. It's it's but it's really not large. It's quite small. So there's that. So anyway, I like this film for a lot of different reasons. It's it's dark. I like dark movies. Phil D'Antoni, who produced it, actually uh, I worked on The French Connection, would make one of the best to me type of these films, which is the uh, the Seven Ups. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Which is sort of like a progression. So you could you would say Bullet. Beget the French Connection, beget the Seven Ups. You know, it's it's almost like a trilogy, maybe unintentionally. Uh, it's a good film. It's a good McQueen film, and it really latched onto this thing of him. But he doesn't like to stand still, so he will switch genres. Yes. So I did not see the Reavers, so I don't know if you need to talk about that one. But we go to Le Mans after that. The Reavers is a western. I I I saw. And I thought it was okay. It was very amiable. It was kind of cutesy. It was like after after seeing Bullet, and like he's off screen for about two years, and then suddenly there's like a hokey jokey, very uh, midwestern kind of romance thing. I can't remember what it was about. I, I, whether it was a western or he was driving cars, it was just very amiable for what it was, and and I, I couldn't even tell what the intention audience was for this kind of movie almost sort of like they were trying to let's make Steve McQueen because I guess maybe with the war films and with Bullet he was thought of as very urban and then maybe they want to appear towards a more uh, Midwestern yes Midwestern audience Um, based on a a Faulkner novel allegedly well 62 so it's not that old good I've got a decent supporting cast you know you got Sharon Farrell who never did much outside of Cagney Lacey in later years but you know Michael Constantine Clifton James yes that guy Will Gear, you know lots of Diane Ladd small role it was the kind of film that you didn't know where it was going it was just it was there you, you came out two hours later like haha it was fine what was it about <laughs> um yeah, again, I, I couldn't really tell you much about now Le Mans. Yeah, part of the break that you just mentioned about his career had to do with his desperate need to make this film. Now, God knows why. Le Mans, 1971, it's a very 70s faux docudrama about stock car racing. Some of the footage actually is from a race in Le Mans that the Queen entered and had filmed with a camera car, but a lot of it's fudged and melded with later film material. It's very much of its time with hippies everywhere, the same feel as similar but more authentic era documentaries as Woodstock, Derby, and Black Rodeo. There's some plot involved beyond the footage of crowds, setup, racing, and accidents, but it's pretty basic. McQueen may or may not be responsible for another driver's fiery death, but the guy's widow does the horizontal bop and makes the camel with two backs with him anyway. 
There is a side plot involving his main rival and his girlfriend trying to get him to quit before he gets killed. But all of this is just there padding to get you along to the next racing scene. I think people knew about his interest in racing and probably went to see this figure and they get to see the guy in action, but it's too artificial and way too much boring drama. I guess it's like being a fan of Evil Knievel, and instead of checking out his failed jet jump at the Grand Canyon or whatever, winding up sitting through Viva Knievel, I get what they were shooting for, but the end result kind of fails miserably. It's pretty much pure crap. Very strange movie. Uh, are, are you originally thought they were going to do like a, a docudrama following him driving cars and his love for such? Okay, I'll be down for that out of curiosity. And like you said, it's a combination of that and some dramatized footage, a fictional film. So you got part docudrama and part fictional film. And, <laughs> so yeah, uh, Lee H. Katzkin, you know, who's that? Well, he he was like, he was a guy who started out in exploitation films as a, not pretty much a go-getter. He was like a, you know, a guy in the set, you know, contributed this and that. He did do some interesting movies, The Salisbury Connection, which I like, and uh, Whatever Happened to Ann Alice. He did those two questionable Dirty Dozen films we might have spoke of in an earlier show. But he worked alongside uncredited John Sturgis, who probably shot the McQueen actual footage of him racing. But it's a very much a Lester McQueen film because then he's playing a character, but he originally started out he's playing himself. My take on this, I think National General Pictures, which was, folks, believe it or not, a studio started by, are you sitting down? McQueen and several other actors, they wanted to have their own film studio, their own production company. And it was very short-lived. It was a lot of bad decisions, a lot of strange movies, and a lot of oddball films. Eventually, they ended up they ended up releasing things that were pickups, like Chinese Hercules, well, yeah. Executive Action, you know, Lady Ice, which was covered during the Southern show. show. Yeah. That was a good one. The two, two Bruce Lee films, Fist of Fury, Chinese Connection. Okay, kudos for that, but we know why. The Getaway, which is a McQueen picture we're going to get to, and Prime Cut, one of the most insane films I ever I love that film, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we got that. Then, But this leads to the same year, a more McQueen type of film called On Any Sunday. Did you see that? I did not see that one. Yeah, so what what is he like beside race car driving? Driving motorcycles. So Bruce Brown who is a documentary filmmaker, follows McQueen around on his motorcycle and his love for motorcycle riding. And that's the gig. McQueen finances under his auspicious never to be named again Solar Production Company. Okay. and But not released through National Treasure, released through Cinema 5, which is another company that was starting up around that time. Basically, it's about dirt bike racing, motorcycle riding, and guys who love it. And it's it's a very macho kind of thing. I've seen this uh, two or three times over the years. It's okay. I've seen it. Okay. You know, docudramas are kind of difficult to watch. You know, they did the ha- the helmet camera thing, which is early in its usage, you know, for that time period. I just never really warmed to it. It's good to see if you've never seen it. Uh, if you're a, a, like, hardcore fan, all right. Junior Bonner. Yes. Did you see that? 
I think we skipped this one in our Joe Don Baker show, but this one from 1972 pairs Sam Peckinpah's director with Joe Don, McQueen, and of all people, Ida Lupino as family members. It's another melodrama disguised as a Western where McQueen's a rodeo buckaroo who got thrown and fell off the circuit. He goes home to visit his family, who he finds estranged from one another, with his father dreaming of sheep farming and barnet for all you Toyo Wilcox fans. Actually, Australia. But he's broke. So is McQueen. And brother Joe Don's an asshole developer who's so low as to demolish the family home so he can build a trailer park. So the big dramatic hook of the film is, can he get back on the bull with Throdom for a big cash prize so he can pay for Pappy's dream move to come true? Seriously, that's it. Joe Don doesn't get a lot to do beyond sneering and throwing a punch or two, and there's really no justification for this one beyond a lot of rodeo footage, so why not just watch a rodeo on TV? I used to catch him on Sunday night years ago. I'm sure someone still airs him. Phew, another real stinker. I don't know what draw Peck and Pot to this film. I don't know what draw McQueen to this film. Maybe there was a different movie made and this is what came out of it it comes off very slight and amiable and with this just kind of interesting cast here you know ben johnson's in this thing barbara lay who was already too old to play bramparella but spent 40 years trying to tell everybody she was good enough for it <laughs> um, i i don't know what the deal was i i would hazard a guess that peck made a different film but that uh cinerama and then later fox internationally decided they took a look at this and said you know what we're going to eviscerate what you have. We're going to release a family-friendly film. And that's, I think, what happened. Very strange to see McQueen and playing this kind of sort of slightly bumbling, over-the-hill kind of rodeo guy because it's not how he envisioned him. But, you know, the part of the thing with him and folks who listen to the show is, like, he's all over the place. We never know what he's gonna do although this leads to about four or five more pictures in his cv another pick and pop pictures next yes so the getaway 1972 another second pick and pop easily the best film sam peckinpah ever did aside from straw dogs and the very period cb trucker craze cheese fest convoy this was a huge step up from the abysmal junior bonner the inexplicably popular at the time Allie mcgraw who i always found oddly manly and plain shows up for the first of two peckinpah pairings the other under a terrible afro wig in the aforementioned convoy as the wife of jailbird steve mcqueen she's sleeping with a local politician to get him sprung but in exchange they have to join a pair of thugs to rob a certain bank and then split the proceeds problem is it's all one big setup and double cross. McQueen's too slick for him, so when they try to gun him down during the operation, he's covered by bulletproof vest. But even so, everything goes wrong from here on out. A guard gets shot. The one thug kills the other one for that. A planned distraction winds up catching McQueen and McGraw in the middle of it, so they wind up smashing through a house and gaining a lot of attention, rather than slipping away quietly, something that keeps happening as the film progresses. They gun down the remaining double-crosser, your pal from Mr. Majestic, Salvatore Baccaro lookalike, Al Letieri, but failed to actually kill him, and with all the screw-ups along the way, they keep getting tailed by cops and crooks alike on their way to safety in Mexico. You've seen it all before, and probably with a lot more likable characters and intention, but given just how lousy most Peckhamot pictures are, and how many iffy films popular with McQueen of, this one actually holds up pretty damn well, considering. Plus, you get the weird side story of the annoying Sally Struthers of all in the family and Save the Children fame as a pudgy, large-memoried skank who actually finds disgusting old Alateri hot and keeps fucking him while her wimpy husband watches as they tail McQueen from hotel to hotel. It's bizarre, and there actually really was no reason for the whole side story other than to see her big tits. Peckinpah, McQueen, and Letieri were all noted drunks, so they probably came up with the idea we're in a binge. And then we have her all hot for, get this, old out here! <laughs> <laughs> Unlike most films of this type and vintage, there's actually a happy ending and involves, of all people, perennial likable hick, Slim Pickens. Okay, so 
Yeah, go ahead. This is yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, under duress, when I was growing up, I used to see all in the family on occasion. Friends, families would watch it. Uh, maybe my family, my mother would look at it once in a while. And say, Sally Struthers, okay. You're annoying. You have an annoying voice. And then I saw this movie. And not only does she have big tits, she has big nipples. And I was like, oh, my God, my life changed. You mentioned it in a prior show. I'm like, you're crazy. And I saw this. I'm like, this is what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what's fucked up? What's fucked up is I used to watch the Andy Griffith show on occasion. They're like, oh, yeah, Andy Opie. And the guy from the barber shop is the dentist. <laughs> and, and he's, he, no, sorry, the, the vet. He's the veterinarian. It was the same thing, right? So he's a veterinarian who Sally's married to. <laughs> and when Al shows up, he puts him in the back car. He's like, shut up. I'm going to fuck your wife. You know, <laughs> oh, okay, I'll drive. You know, like that kind of like cuckold thing. And, and, you know, these guys knew what they were doing, too. I'm sure they knew a lot of dark shit between the Beck and Paul. You know, like you say, they're sitting around drinking. There's a Walter Hill screenplay, another third guy drinking around sitting. And I'm, I'm sure they were coming up with, hey, you ever heard of Coco? No, what's that? And let me tell you. And remember, a tiny so, guys are into that. That's a thing with them. <laughs> some guys are into that. Like, fuck my wife. I'll sit down and watch. Like, what are you, an idiot? So, <laughs> that whole Madonna horror thing, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely going on with Sally Struthers. And, and unfortunately, we've never seen... Much more sexed up Sally than we saw in this movie, but I, it definitely I totally, I fucked up. I thought you were crazy when you said it, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like, oh, no, Lou, he's sexed up anyway, but no, he's right. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah I actually think, seri- all seriously, that, that this probably hurt her career, too. And, and you know, it's like, wow. And Al, Al was, Al has a very interesting career. He wasn't just his face, his character actor. He was a guy, he was a real guy, and he got into movies, and, and he just fit these roles so well. I'm surprised he didn't branch out into something else. Maybe even a TV thing would have been wonderful for him. He, he was like, he was more, I think Alateri was more talented than, than people gave him notice for. Now, I don't like the getaway, though. All that makes <laughs> sense. It's it's much like I didn't like the Thomas Crown affair. You you want to like a cool Steve McQueen movie. This movie is like uber cool. It oozes cool, right? You got Walter Hill, Sam Peckinpah, Ali McGraw even looks tasty in this. Although it's weird that he's okay with her fucking a lot of people just so he can get out of jail. It's not just that one guy either, by the way. So it's like, but he's like, okay, he got out. Then, oh, do you remember this? He gets out of jail. She picks him up in the car, and he's impotent. You remember that? Yes. So is part of it he's impotent because he's been in jail, or is part Prison of it? Prison gay. <laughs> or, or, no, seriously. Or is part of it he knows he got out of jail because he's been fucking more than just that guy. He's been fucking a lot of guys. He does make a comment about it. He was upset at one point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. Wouldn't you? Of course. Are you crazy. <laughs> okay. So so you know it's a weird thing. It's a weird fucking movie. And, you know, I, I have to say, I like Steve a lot, but I really didn't warm up to him in this picture. I don't care if the movie ended in a sort of haphazardly semi-positive manner. It's weird it became so beloved as a Steve McQueen movie when it's fucked up. He comes off unlikable. It's a lot better than Thomas Crown Affair, though. Yes, yes. No, no. Yeah, we're not even going there. But it's just like he comes off unlikable. As a pair that come off unlikable, they do questionable things. Sometimes people get off okay because they decided at the moment okay we're gonna let you live yeah you know? remember they were married for a while so you know true well remember i started the show name checking a yep. song yep. so but 
I really liked. Excuse me. And they have no chemistry. That's what I'm trying to get at. They have no chemistry, but you know. But sometimes people together, real life couple, they have no chemistry on film. That happens. Now you saw Papillon. Yeah. So okay. So usually I wind up discovering some interesting films and sleepers in these shows, like with Michael Caine in The Magus, Connery in The Great Train Robbery, or Elliot Gould in Silent Partner, among others. Obviously, sometimes it's positive reassessments of films I dismissed previously, like Spies with Gould, Clute with Sutherland, or Caine with Death Trap and The Ipcris File. But this time. Whew, you have to wonder, was McQueen picking all these shitty films to star in, or was he just taking anything that was handed to him? Yeah, there's a handful of classics, and one or two that aren't too bad, but I have to reiterate, I was shocked to find the bulk of his filmography is positively abysmal. Speaking of which, Papo Yon, 1973. Everything you ever hated about all those Corman Philippine set, Italian and French Eurocene women in prison and Nazi exploitation films, minus any of the sex, any of the transgression, any of the exploitation elements, the actors and actresses you're familiar with, and dragged out the Brobdignagian lengths. Two and a half hours of debasement and drudgery with nothing but a surly, roughly aged, and dentally challenged McQueen and a hammy, weirdly accented Dustin Hoffman to get you through. I echo the film's protagonist. Who cares whether we'll live or die? Just leap off the cliff already. I think I had a better time watching Solo. Ilsa was certainly more fun, and the scummiest Italian Nazi exploitation were less grueling. Having to sit through Hoffman's performance alone was utter torture. How did this asshole become famous again? Tootsie? Rain Man? Most unjustifiably overrated actor of all time. He's abominable. So, yeah, I found this one really painful. Well, I, I guess we're not doing a Dustin Hoffman show anytime. Oh, no. <laughs> I hate Dustin Hoffman. Well, you aren't impressed by Steve McQueen drinking his own piss? Oh, jeez. And he's so old and beat up and put upon in his... Uh, unless you really to... want to see him age and looking horrible. Well, he's supposed to be old and beat up and put upon. I I, I know, but jeez. I, I was always very impressed by this movie. Nah. Wow. <laughs> I, I actually... It is grueling. I like, it's no, grueling. I like Papillon. I, I just... I guess it just didn't work for you. It's all right. I, I think it's brutal. I think, I think outside of any... I mean... Well, that's why I mentioned Solo and Ilsa. I mean, this is such painful. Well, you know, what's what's the Men in Prison movie where there's Caged Men? That was actually a good one. No, no, no. <laughs> it's it's the one with Brad, one that took place in Brazil or something. Midnight Express. Yeah, which is very brutal. What is missing from Papillon, probably because of its time period, 1973, is is all homosexual, sadomasochistic elements. I think it would have been too much to take, but that being put aside, this is a brutal movie to watch. Yeah, um, exactly my point. Um, this, it's based on a true story by the guy who lived it. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, and Henri Chabot. Yeah. And, and then Dalton Trumbo, Lorenzo Semple, you know, two decent screenwriters. Lorenzo Semple, who gave us the Batman TV series. Yeah, yeah. But Dalton Trumbull was, was a blacklisted guy for years, you know, so interesting, you know, you know I I it's a good film, according to me. It's a good film. It's a shocking film. Not one you're gonna wanna revisit. And and it's it's hard to watch and, and it's difficult. Whether the elements that I said were left out of this version showed up in a, a remake from about three or four years ago. I don't know. I didn't see that. I was like, I already saw Papillon, and I don't need to see it again. <laughs> uh, I've seen this film a few times. I thought Steve McQueen is absolutely incredible. Really stepped out of his own shoes. Dustin Hoffman, I don't have the problem you have with him. Oh, he's horrible. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I don't have that issue with him that you do. But I, 
I think it's a very good stupid grief film. I think it's a shocker. I think it shocked the hell out of people who saw this movie in theaters expecting amiable Steve McQueen from Great Escape you know, or something. Bonner. Yeah, Juno Bonner or, or psycho crazy Steve McQueen from The Getaway getting his movie when a man's in prison for umpteen years drinking his own piss because he needs to survive or jumping off a cliff repeatedly only brought back to Devil's Island, folks. I, I liked it. I think he's really good in it. The fact that I would rather watch people be forced to eat shit in Solo says a lot about this film. <laughs> oh, you're a sick man. That no, film is disgusting. Not... I hate that film, so that says a lot about this one. No, no, I, I would not go to those directions. But he took off two years to do a movie we didn't think he would appear in. Yeah, he does some strange ones. The Towering Inferno, 1974. One of the earlier of a swath of 70s disaster films, usually under the auspices of Irwin Allen, that would fill out the better part of the big-budget blockbuster slots of that decade. It ticks off all the usual boxes, a long, dramatic build-up of several interweaving stories as we work our way through a huge Star Parker cast, and all their little problems with peccadillos. Before the problem the bigwigs were warned of and poo-pooed early on, actually erupts in a major problem that impacts everyone. Some die, some turn heroic, others are just whiny and annoying. There's always a kid, senior citizens, and a love interest. To bring extra drama to the Hallmark crowd when they are endangered. Big violence, well, roll credits. I tend to enjoy these camp relics of a different time. They used to annoy the shit out of me as a kid, being so ubiquitous, overlong and overdramatic and soapy, but so damn cheesy. It's hard not to get a laugh out of them. And they bear an important message about hubris that seems increasingly lost on modern society. That arrogance, narcissism, and pride always precede one hell of a fall. Say la. There's a terrible song, a cast of washed-up old Hollywood types, and quirky up-and-comers like Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, who gets to be the hero of the piece, William Holden, the builder, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, the comment who flirts with this other woman, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, Anjin Sano Shogun, Jennifer Jones, Mr. Bloody Glove, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, Robert Wagner, 9to5's Dabney Coleman, The Brady Bunch's Mike Lookinland, Maureen McGovern, who gives such detestable music of the air as, There has to be a morning after. <laughs> yeah, she has an even worse song here. Is it one of the greats? No, you get a lot more laughs out of the last two airport films, which I reviewed over a third or several years back, and be more genuinely entertained by something like Avalanche with Rock Hudson. But it's a template, and if you're looking for one that's a bit more competent but straight-laced than usual, there's nothing wrong with it beyond being a bit boring. You'll find much better films in this to scratch that itch, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, in comparison to Big Daddy and probably the best of all these things is the Poseidon Adventure. And, and But I would say that, yes, all those things you mentioned do take place in this film, including your Robert Vaughn again, you know, <laughs> a lot of that <laughs> stuff. William Holden, who looks like he's barely focusing on, on the opposite. <laughs> he was drinking so heavily during his period. But it was it's, it's kind of a mind-blower to see McQueen and Paul Newman both still at the top of the charts at this point doing something like this. Although they... You know, one doesn't show up for about 40 minutes into the film, the other one about 20. And, you know, they join forces at the end. Interestingly enough, that Newman is billed on the posters like uh, a paragraph return higher than Steve McQueen, which at this point, like Newman's, in, you know, enjoying some, some better box office success. That's how Hollywood did things in these days. And uh, I'm sure Papillon, while probably a personal favorite of his, hurt him at the box office mm -hmm. two years previous so he probably figures I'll do this yeah I think that's probably why he appeared in this he probably figured these are popular I'll do this I need to get back and it was a huge fan favorite 
of people who like this kind of movie. Uh, the, the effects are pretty spectacular at times. We see lovely cast members engulfed in flames. O.J. Simpson <laughs> does a short run before he burns up. That kind of thing. Not horrible. There were some a lot worse, but uh, again, not like the cream, yeah, you know, which is you know, I would consider the, the Poseidon adventure. And then he disappears. Yeah. For some reason, McQueen wound up marrying his getaway co-star Ally McGraw around this time, and the length of their marriage almost directly coincides with a long gap in his career. So as soon as they divorced in 1978, I guess he started putting himself back on the market. First, for a quirky production of a must-dislike Henry Gibson play, which remains mm. obscure and unavailable for viewing to this day, so I didn't see it. Which, which, which I want to speak of. And then for two final studio pictures. So go ahead. The next one up is... Enemy of the People. Uh, he was McQueen was really into... Ibsen, he wanted to do it on stage. He couldn't find backers. And so he really annoyed people. He, he said, like, I really want to do it. First, he wanted to do it with Ally McGraw. Then their relationship starts to crumble. And then he, he spoke to Michael Winner, director of lots of Charles Bronson films. So, like, I want you to get involved. And people were looking at this. And McQueen's take was to gain a shitload of weight, to play it as close as possible to the original story, which is, you know, an Eric Ibsen play, uh, which was adapted by Arthur Miller. Can we get any more depressing? You know, it's like... And set in, like, what, the 1600s or something? Uh, a little later, I believe, but but still, the issue was... It's a very stiff period piece, yeah. Yeah, very stiff European thing. So, First Daughters, his production company, didn't even want to handle it. They put up the money for it. So, this languished for about a year or two. And then they sold it to Warner Brothers. They said, okay, let's, we'll take a look at the Stephen Queen name. And then Warner Brothers fucked them over by doing a very, very small release with a poster showing McQueen from The Great Escape and Bullet and a picture of him bearded and heavy from this film. And it got a very, very tiny release. It got very negative uh, response from anyone who saw it. It's about a doctor, amateur scientist in a small Norwegian town who has things to say about stuff and nobody wants to cure him down, to shadow down. He's thought of as the town pariah. I get it. You have a project that's your dream project, right? And you may not be... A good enough actor, you know, not deriding anyone, including our, our subject tonight. I'm, I'm trying not to deride him, anyone. I try not to do that. But you just may not be good enough to handle this kind of material, you know. But you go ahead with your heart, and you put up all the money, and you get people to put it together for you and work with you. You know, we had B.B. Anderson in this, and we, we, had, we had a number of Eurocentric people, but we also had a lot of American stage and TV people, because really, who wanted to be in this thing? And then it couldn't get released. And then they rehearsed it. They rehearsed it for several weeks just to get it right, to be like a stage play. And then they shot it as a film, and it went unreleased. Yeah. So here's the deal. I've seen this thing. It's very interesting for fans of Steve McQueen. And I, and I would say it probably has some very good acting in it. If I had anything to really compare it with in this time period, but he did not work too much in this time period. And then a year or two, a year or two later, Steve McQueen finds out he's very sick. And he, he decides to do a one-two punch with a, a Western and an action movie, which is very interesting because he's seeking help now through alternative methods. He executive produced that last one, obviously. He also executive produces this one, mm. uh, which is his return. Stuart lives as it was to major studio pictures. 1980, Tom Horn. 
nearing the end of his career, and the guy's mm. still stuck doing westerns. If you've seen stuff like Big Jake, Lonesome Dove, Little House in the Prairie, and the Waltons, you know exactly the aesthetic here and why it's best to avoid any westerns post-1975 or so, certainly if they fall outside the Italian-Spanish spaghetti paella format. This one's very much got the feel of a TV movie, complete with shaky cam and weird lighting, and it's supposedly based on the memoirs of the real Tom Horn, the guy who captured Geronimo. This one's all about his getting hired by some cattle ranchers to take out rustlers, not in an official capacity so much as an authorized vigilante type. Problem is, even though he does his job well, the local yokels don't take much of a shine to the violent outsider, so the ranchers decide to set him up for a fall just to protect their good PR, believe it or not. A few weird casting choices, but it's visually unimpressive and nothing to write home about, much less to close the career on. You got Steve in this, you got Linda Evans, Slim Pickens, and Elijah Cook Jr. Strange cast, like I said, but yeah, not very good. Oh, this one's a bit of a mess for some reason, but the last film we ever made was much better. Yeah. The, the deal with this is... <sighs> I don't know what's going on with him at this point. After Enemy of the People failed to like light the, the screen on fire in the box office, uh, Steve McQueen decided to price himself out of existence. He was approached for uh, a Towering Inferno sequel that never happened. Sal Kine Superman film, not quite sure what role he would have played. Close Encounters, it had to be the Richard Dreyfuss role, and it would have been great to see him in that. And then a couple other things. And then, you know, after his divorce from Ellie McGraw, which probably bled him out of money, he wanted to do something. So he's looking at this question, which originally was a vehicle for Robert Redford, who dropped out. In the meantime, in the two-plus years it took to get this movie made, David Carradine did a movie called Mr. Horn for television, where he played the same character. <laughs> so now a visibly heavier Steve McQueen does this picture, and he gets it put together. Some friends, Slim Pickens, Billy Greenbush, Elijah Cook Jr., you know, they helped him out. But while making this movie, Steve starts to dramatically drop weight because he's sick with cancer. And he has a very rare form of lung cancer. So he makes it through this picture, and he immediately jumps into another movie. So next up is The Hunter. The official capper to his career came in the same year, with this somewhat tired take on the former entertaining Isaac Hayes black Blackspoiler Truck Turner, which we discussed during our Blackspoitation show, and the nearly years of using The Glove, which we talked in our John Saxon show, where McQueen is a skip tracer. There's a few Blackspoitation X moments, like when he keeps back in his car into some street hoods Cadillac while rounding up dangerous thug LeVar Burton, who then winds up chopping onions at McQueen's house, or his ride home in some Cheech and Chong-style cholos hopped up and bouncing car, but the overall feel of the film is very serious and flat. There's a whole lot of unnecessary drama with another Ally McGraw type, this time Raw Deal and Nightwing's Catherine Harold, most famously of the hilariously awful Luciano Pavarotti comedy Yes, Giorgio, who's decided to go through with her pregnancy despite his job and wishes to abort it, and his throwing himself into some increasingly more dangerous bounty after another, which results in Harold getting kidnapped by a serial killer type. It's really not that great, though it could have been a lot better if they dropped the whole pregnancy and settling down thing and emphasized either the exploiter comedy angle or went for more of a straight-up Dirty Harry Bronson film aesthetic. Balancing between serial comedy and maudlin melodrama like it does is kind of a mess that doesn't really satisfy anyone. But the only thing you can say for it, for a guy apparently dying of cancer at the time, he doesn't look it. I, you know, I, I like this film. Knowing it was the last film he made in his life and knowing he was very, very sick making this, you know, all these years later, I, I still give him a lot of credit for doing this movie. It's fun. It's yes, it could have been so much better. It, it, it could have. He was, you know, Steve McQueen was one of your classic kind of guys that he he was he was a co-owner of his own studio, which didn't exist anymore by 1980, with some other actors. He he was a top 
top box office draw, which didn't happen anymore. He was married to, he had a crazy lifestyle, drugs, and then suddenly he's diagnosed with a rare metastatic lung, lung cancer. He's trying to seek help all throughout the world, and he's just figuring, I'm going to work. I need to work. You know, I made this dream project of mine. Nobody wanted to see it, whatever. So he makes this movie, which which I have a soft spot for. It's got issues. The supporting cast could have been better. It's not cheesy, which it could have been. <laughs> There's some interesting stuff. It looks to me like a a visibly sick and wheezing McQueen is running running a. He does a lot of the stunts himself still, like a like an older Belmondo. He's leaping across the train tracks. You remember that? He's he's leaping on the train thing, and it looks like he's having a tough time. So. Part of that is supposed to be his character, who, who at this time is nearly 50, which is nothing. But that you're dying of cancer and a lot of pain means a lot to me. So so I'm, I'm not looking at, oh, your character's 50 and you're having difficulty. I'm looking at you're fucking dying and you're having probably trouble breathing and you're having a lot of pain. So it also makes the, sub, the subtextual thing where his girlfriend is pregnant and going to labor a little bit bittersweet, you know? That the character in the film. That might be why he did it. Yeah, but. yeah. There, there's a lot going on there. So I, I, I kind of have a soft spot for this film. And I'm glad he went out with something like this than the other, Tom Horn. So remember when we did our Sean Connery show and we were shocked about how many bad or questionable films the man did outside of the Bond series? Mm-hmm. Well, despite dodging the bullet of being cast in McQueen's role in the Thomas Crown Affair, old Sean had nothing on Steve. I mean, so many poor choices, so many questionable to terrible films. He's actually very lucky he started in a handful of films that were and remain so beloved just to upset all the pure shit that was produced here, as you can see from what we discussed. I mean, yeah, this was, despite my respect for the guy's talent and the fact that he was a genuine tough guy, this was hands down the roughest batch of films we've ever reviewed for a single podcast, bar none. I'm almost gobsmacked, like, wow, this was a crazy one. Hopefully the next one won't be so well, crazy. Well, our next one should be, I believe, in the schedule holds, will be Pam Greer. Pam Greer, yes. So that should be a lot safer. Yes, a lot safer. <laughs> a lot of samey films going on in the early years. Yes. So. So anything you want to say to close out? No, no. It's, I, I'm glad we got to recognize Stephen Queen. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't happen. And uh, there, uh, when we had the positive moments, I, I think it was good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, we we agreed on some negative moments, and you know, it's 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 what happens. You know, you're even some of the bad ones they could have been better if. Yeah, and, you know, that's that's good. Yeah. So thanks for joining us tonight. Yes. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat with Steve McQueen. Next time around, we'll be talking Pam Greer. Yes. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We are also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and we're on iTunes. You can just look us up at the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Otherwise, we are at iTunes.apple.com, US Podcast, Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, ID 5534020044. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, anything else you want to say to close out? No, uh, thank you for listening. And we hope you guys are enjoying, uh, you listeners, <laughs> you guys and gals. We hope our listeners are actually enjoying listening to these uh, podcasts about actors, character actors, actresses. Uh, we, we try to do something different. You know, how many years can you be doing something like this, of this ilk, and not just trying to shake up the tree a little bit? Shake that yeah. tree. And, well, yeah, we hope you're having fun. And we hope sometimes what I really would like 
is that maybe it would make you want to, oh, really? It sounds interesting. Like if you've never seen a movie or if we pique your interest and you want to go back and see something, you know, you know, that's what we really would like to accomplish here. It's like you go back and look at something you never saw, you never heard of, or you said you thought it was shit. Let's say there's a movie you heard it was shit, you're never going to see it, and we spoke highly of it. It might make you take another look at it. Yeah, definitely. So that that's fun. You know, we, we hope to accomplish something here. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There is a lot of stuff here that, even if you are familiar with it, like you know, person that acts like Stephen you probably have not seen all these films that we've seen here and uh, forced ourselves to rewatch or whatever the case may be. And hopefully we've spurred something that may be of interest to you, at least for a cheap laugh. It's not for like, oh, that's a good film. One way or the yeah. other. You know, it's, it's worth it. Right. You had their recent shows with something that I like that people were like, yeah, I don't know. And then you watched it for the show and you're like, oh, okay, I like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it happens. Definitely happens. So, I guess we will see you next time on Pam Yes, yes. Thank you again for listening. to see Blondie nowadays you know except for one person pretty much it's the original band but yeah. she's like 70 something years old now I mean yeah I cur- I haven't listened to her on YouTube or anything lately you know I, I know some people that went that said you know she sounds good so I don't know I saw her back in the 90s when she put on a lot of weight but mm. the sound you know her singing didn't really change that much who knows could be good yeah speaking of which I had no idea Sting was in town this week and I usually watch for these kind of things. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I like some Jesse Sting. I'm like, of course, I like the police. But I had some friends that went and they, you know, they were shooting some pictures and videos. Like, hey, he sounds great. I'm like, fuck, how did I not know Sting was in town? <laughs> but I tell you, man, t- t- ticket prices are like fucking go higher and higher and higher. Yeah, I've seen that. It's ridiculous. Oh, speaking of which, after we do Dakota, hmm. I have to tell you, you know, all right, we can do it now. 
Blu-ray prices are going up. You I know. This? It's horrible. I'm trying to be good anyway, but you know how few Blu-rays I get anymore? It's crazy. Me too. Yeah, me too. And so I was at the show. This is still going to take two minutes. I was at the show, and like our favorites, Video Syndrome there, like... You see, I, when I go to the show, they bump them down to 15 for the DVDs and 20 for the Blu-rays. I'm like, oh, nice. So this time it was 20 for the DVDs and, 50, and 25 for the Blu-rays. I'm like, wow. Well, we're, you know, we're doing the, the sale. I said, yeah, but you're online. You're selling them for $32. So what your percentage off? I'm still paying more than I'm paying you here. Yeah. You know, and I was kind of like, I, I did buy a few titles because I really wanted them. But I was like, I don't know. And then I went to the Severin table and I'm like, guys, come on. They put a tag up, $30 each Blu-ray, 25 yeah. each. I'm I like, actually, come on. The best thing is I got some at a sale like months ago. And okay. that Night Killer one with Peter Hooten from Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. I got that. And it was a nice price, right? All Two right. months later, they canceled it. Oh, we couldn't get it back. Or I can't find it for anywhere near that. Now they're trying to get like 30 bucks. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm paying 30 bucks. I was, I was about to get it for like 16. I'm like, come on. Well, uh, they had two titles I want that they said they don't have anymore. They had them on the table. And uh, one box set was $100. Ooh. This is out of print. You wow. put this out. You're going to charge me $100 for something you sold for 69 Why are you going to charge me $100? You put it out. <laughs> right? Because yeah. it's out of print. He was hard fast to that. Wow. I said, well, somebody will buy it. And somebody did. I went by it later. Somebody did. But And the other thing I wanted, he had 60 It was 25 on the website. Jeez. When I was there the night before, he said, oh, we found some extras in the Yo, okay, so they found some more they didn't sell. But why are you selling it for 60 Don't bleed your fucking, you know, come on. And, you know, they put out that damn Scorpion took over that was supposed to be Code Red, the uh, the Nashy films. Mm. So I'm like, all right, Mummy's Revenge still never came over since the VHS days. Right. The fuckers never put it below 27 bucks. I'm like, are you crazy? I'm not going to pay that. If I got that's, it from Code Red by now, it would have been like 20 bucks or less. That's the going rate. So what I've been doing. I made myself a little list, and I went to the Shout Factory, Screen Factory, Code Red, mm-hmm. Severin, and like, what do, what do I want? Including something like this, a hammer thing, but they have both versions of Seven Golden Vampires, which I actually really like. Mm-hmm. And so I went down, it was like $14. I'm like, okay, I'll get it from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what kind of deals are going on there, but I'll tell you something. I the boutique labels, we spoke about this off here a lot, but they're getting out of hand because, you know, I like that the crazy shit's... Mondo Macabro, too. Yep, Mondo, same thing. What are, yeah, is that that? Yeah. Mondo had this new thing, Killer of Dolls. Which, oh, yeah, I got that part of the thing I was talking about. Okay, yeah, I missed I missed that. And so I'm reading reviews. Oh, I have that, or I watched it. I'd like to have a nice copy of it. And then looking at their price, I'm like, wow, you guys are nuts. Yeah, they're crazy. Their prices they list, I'm like, are you nuts? You can't even wait for, like, oh, look, we'll wait for Black Friday, we'll wait for whatever. No, you better off getting in a fucking summer with some oddball site will have it for a nice price. I actually got that and another Spanish horror, Chris Miller. Ooh, mm, Chris Miller. It's like, there's no way to get them otherwise. If you actually have to go to the site or pay anything anywhere near retail, it's like 20 or 30% off, fuck you. You can't do it. I was very disappointed at, at like, the actual people who are distributing these things and um, price gouging. Yeah. They're all learning from Bill from Code Red. Oh, let's make it all rare, and that way people pay extra. No, fuck you. We don't have this money. (laughs) So anyway.
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the 
the career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio.